0: Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. It was soon after my bipolar diagnosis that I picked up Ellen Forney's graphic novel memoir, Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo, and Me. Ellen is an artist and health coach, best known for Marbles and her other graphic novel, Rock Steady, brilliant advice for my bipolar life. I've learned a ton from all kinds of books about mental health, and I will stand by this Marbles understood my mental health condition more than any other book I've read. Ellen was diagnosed with bipolar in 1998 shortly before her 30th birthday and has been stable for more than 17 years. In her books and private health coaching practice, also called Rocksteady, she uses the clever acronym Smedmertz to teach her clients routine habits and coping tools to avoid crisis and live happily and healthfully. So what exactly does Smedmertz stand for? Let's do this. S is for sleep. M is for meds. E is for eat. D is for doctor. M is for mindfulness. E is for exercise. R is for routine, T is for tools, and S is for support system. Ellen says if you do all these things, you have the best chance at mental wellness. I've followed her advice, along with a few hacks of my own, and I believe it's a huge part of my stability. Smedmert's for the win. Hi, I'm
1: Ellen Forney. I've been a professional cartoonist since 1992. In 1998, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And in 2012, my graphic memoir came out about my bipolar disorder and my dealing with it and trying to figure out how to get stable. And that's Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo and Me. And since then, i put out a companion book to that called rock steady brilliant advice from my bipolar life which is kind of if marbles is my story and rock steady is more of a mental health handbook from a personal point of view and since then i started a practice as a mental health coach based on rock steady and the stuff that i put in there and it's been really really satisfying to be able to work with people one-on-one after putting my stuff out for so many people, but in kind of this broad swath and not having much interaction with people in person.
0: I've been reading a lot about this idea that folks will hit rock bottom, which kind of goes, you know, along with your rock steady kind of the flip side of it. I'm wondering about crisis and one of the chapters in your rock steady book is the danger zone and how that looks for folks, maybe how it looked for you.
1: So one of the things that I emphasize is that the best way to deal with crisis is to not get into a crisis. That sounds obvious, but it's not easy, but that's sort of the aim for what to work on. So in Rocksteady, the premise is that taking care of yourself is this holistic system of considering and i came up with this with the acronym Smedmertz, which is supposed to be silly <laughs> <laughs> so many acronyms in everything scientific i figured that i would have one of my own and then it would be a cartoonist style silly one but it does mean actually something that i believe seriously which is and SMEDMertz stands for sleep meds eat well doctor therapy mindfulness and meditation exercise, routine, coping tools, and support system, all of those things come together into how we take care of ourselves kind of all the time. And along with that comes a lot of self-awareness and being able to know when it is that we might be getting into danger territory, whether it's because of a situation that's going on, Or if it's something in our own life, or if it's something just because we're bipolar or have any sort of mental issue, mental disorder, just because our brains are finely tuned and they can be kind of quirky. And so to know what those symptoms are or like what those signs are, I guess, when you might be heading into a danger territory. And then to really pull back and say okay now i have to make sure that i get enough sleep have i been eating well have i been doing meditation have i been doing my routine and really kind of like buckle down on those things it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll avoid a crisis but the idea is to have enough different ways that you take care of yourself that it will decrease the possibility that you'll go there and have the tools ready if you start heading into that territory. And so once it gets beyond that I think, you know, once you once you start revving to the point that those tools can't work anymore, then it gets into other territory like do you take yourself to the hospital, what support system do you reach out to? Do you reach out to your doctor? That is beyond the scope of what I do personally. The crisis part for me, it's okay. How can we stay steady so that we don't get there?
0: From my experience, I was blindsided by it. I had no Mm -hmm. idea. I really wasn't expecting to be in the hospital or to be coming out with huge depression, huge mania. I was blindsided. And so I'm wondering when you first went through a mental health crisis, what was your experience?
1: Generally around the time of diagnosis, that's crisis. That's the reason that I have this whole philosophy system of avoiding that. When I was first diagnosed, it was after two, I don't know, rounds, I guess, of episodes of being quite manic and then quite depressed and then really manic. And that's when I was diagnosed and then really depressed. That episode, that round, my mania lasted five months and my depression lasted a year and a half. That's something that I hope to never, ever repeat or even get too much of a taste of really, frankly, it was really traumatic. How can you not be blindsided by it? It's really intense and it always feels like. (laughs) Should we sing this? It always feels like the first time. In a lot of ways, it feels really familiar. Even when I was in that deep depression, I was like, oh, this, this, and realized that I had had smaller depressions throughout my twenties. So there was a way that it was familiar, but just the profundity of it, just the deepness of it was really intense. Yeah.
0: Do you remember the warning signs leading up to that? Or were you just in it?
1: Well, I was just in it. And you know what? I guess I have to add to that. When we think about the trauma, thinking about bipolar in particular, we do tend to think of the depression part. I guess it's easy to kind of forget how traumatic mania is too. The fallout from it with friends and family, the, for a lot of people, the expense of it. I know I did my share of overspending, but not nearly as much as the financial holes that a lot of people get into. Not even just people around us and the people that we love, but even within the experience of it, just the way that such little sleep, such decreased appetite. I know I would always lose a lot of weight. It's really, really hard on your body. So it's really kind of physically traumatic that way, just pushing really hard and always compelled and obsessed and Forward moving that way, I wanted to balance that when you're thinking about the the trauma that we've gone through, specifically around bipolar, isn't just the lows, but it's the intense driven highs, and then too something that a lot of people who don't have bipolar perhaps don't know, it's just the rocky middle of the road. You know, it's not always up or down, or even the steady in the middle is called euthymic. But there's a lot, there's just kind of this jumble of oversensitivity and crying for a couple of days and you don't know why. And I mean, everybody's experience is different. The signs that I have learned before, oh, like these are signs that I might be getting into a danger zone, has been if I start getting less sleep. Less sleep and feeling okay, you know, like not feeling tired. And the other main thing is if I feel like I want to keep interrupting people. They're talking too slow. And because I have something important to say, those two things are the main things. And then, am I forgetting to sleep is another one. This is because usually my episodes would start out with mania. I've been stable for a long time now. I've been stable pretty much since 2002. I haven't gone through a full blown episode, but it doesn't mean that I haven't pulled myself back. Oh, you know, I noticed that I'm starting to cry a lot is another one. How long does that go on? What do I need to do? Perhaps tell my doctor, perhaps just make sure that I get very regular sleep. Those would be some of the warning bells for me.
0: From my experience, the idea of being hypomanic or manic, you're so much in it that maybe you don't really understand there's a crisis going on reflecting back on it later and saying, oh, wait a second. Okay, that was a very serious episode.
1: Yeah, it's hard to figure those out. You know, it takes a lot of work. I have a lot of tools. It's one of the things I've put together in Rocksteady. I've learned a lot of things and I've come to a place in my own bipolar that people that I've spoken with and readers, they find it helpful too. And one of the things that I emphasize in my coaching practice too is to chart To get to know your patterns what are your warning signs write down how much you're sleeping good chance you're not noticing that you're sleeping less and less if you're writing that down every morning then you would notice that how are you eating and so just making it as easy as you can so that you can just check boxes learning your patterns really will help a lot in making it not seem like it's coming out of the blue
0: do you consider mental health breakdown and mental health crisis as being the same thing.
1: Breakdown and crisis. What do you think? What do you mean when you say that?
0: Well, it's interesting because in my writing, I was using the term breakdown. I broke down, I got broken, I fell apart, whatever you want to say. It was more of a visual thing. I could picture Mm -hmm. something breaking in half. But now I like to, I don't like to, but the the (laughs) phrase crisis seems to me to be more accurate because a crisis is a very urgent, scary situation. Whereas a breakdown just feels like something's just crumbling. There's no real resolution or fight to it.
1: Yeah, no, totally. No, I think so too. Some people might look at that kind of thing and say, well, that's just semantics, It's it's just words, it means the same thing but it makes a huge difference. I mean, it's a psychological thing, like the difference between a garbage man and a sanitation worker. They have very different connotations and you kind of relate to that idea in a different way. And for sure, it works counter to your healing to think of yourself as broken, as opposed to, okay, here's something that I need to figure out how to deal with. How can I get, beyond this. I mean, I was a psychology major dealing with psych stuff. I think it makes a huge difference. Instead of saying that it's hard, I'll think it's challenging. It's a similar idea. It's just, there's an inherent suggestion that it's something to deal with. Something that you have the power to brainstorm and troubleshoot and get beyond or get around or get under or like, however it is that you can hold that and move forward, you know, rather than bumping up against something or falling apart.
0: Let me know what you think about this. But I actually think that the manic side is also a form of depression because the symptoms that I have when I'm hypomanic is just as awful. It's just as tiring.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I've said that for a long time that there is actually a lot of overlap, that we have a tendency to think of it as bipolar, they're totally different, but that sense of feeling kind of fried or the anxiety or the kind of uh, that goes along with both of them, really sleep is weird. The experience of feeling like it's beyond your control. When I was working on marbles and manic and turning from writing from the point of view of, I was a pain in the ass to having more compassion with myself. And some of that came from, I did interviews with everyone who was in it, my friends, my family. It's one of the reasons that the process of doing it was so intense and amazing and difficult and learned so much, but it was a friend of mine, one of my closest friends. I said something about how much of a pain I was when I was manic and I'll never forget it. She looked at me and said, but you could really command a room. You were really fun. And I realized that there was that aspect too, that it was okay if I accepted those sides that weren't actually completely inaccurate, you know, that I was funny, that I did have a certain charisma, that I did have a certain heat. It came along with a lot of detrimental stuff that were totally interrelated. Like flip sides of the same thing. Being able to tell a story amazingly but also not letting anyone else speak. That kind of thing. And and presenting myself as really fun but not giving anybody else the room to be themselves, pushing people away that way. But recognizing that that there was a side that was okay, was a big deal to me coming from a friend of mine and just the look on her face. And part of it was that I was criticizing myself, but a part of it was actually an aspect that I wasn't expecting of somebody who was close to me looking at me from the outside. And this is one of the reasons that I was interviewing people like this is my experience of April 6, you know, 1997, what was your impression of me then? Knowing that they probably weren't gonna be the same, but not expecting that outside source would find it a positive thing.
0: And even at a microcosm level, going back and asking someone about, hey, remember the time that I said this thing and they're just like, oh, I thought you were joking or I don't remember that or wasn't right. a big deal. But of course, in my brain, it's nagging me, like, why did you say that five years ago? Oh my God, negative self talk. Looking back at it with embarrassment and regret and all these things. In your experience, how much atonement has to be done in a situation like that?
1: I think that it depends a lot on the context. Sometimes it's the most respectful thing to go back to somebody and say, this is where I was coming from. And I'm sorry. And to atone that way. But I also think that sometimes it means just letting that person heal and let that bridge, let that bridge be burned. Okay. Maybe we both need to heal over and maybe if it comes up sometime, I know it's a tricky thing. What is the context? I thought of this. I've burned some bridges and I've thought about how to deal with them. And so some have been repaired and some of them, not like there's a lot, you know, <laughs> this file folder of, <laughs> of burnt bridges.
0: Yeah, hey, you can have some of mine.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> Take them out of my file.
1: <laughs> I remember years ago a friend of mine, who actually so more of an acquaintance of mine, I guess, was going through AA. And she called me up and said she was clearly very uncomfortable and brought up something that happened some evening years before. And I didn't remember it. And I was fine with her bringing it back up. but. I wasn't sure that it was really healing for either of us. And so I think that that's part of it. Who is it for? Is it to make you feel better? If I'm going to go back to this person who I think, you know, like i burned this bridge and I think that they've healed over. If I went and said, this is what was going on for me, I'm sorry, am I doing it for me or am I doing it for them? part of if you're atoning and you're really atoning, it's for them. So I think it's tricky. I think it's tricky.
0: What about disordered language? Because when I first got diagnosed bipolar, I would always talk about it being a disorder, you know, a brain disease, an illness, bipolar disorder was the words I used to describe what I was going through. And in the last year or so, it's been living with bipolar, even dropping the word disorder. I'm wondering what you think about disordered language.
1: As ever, I think it's different for everyone and that it's really important for us to recognize that it's different for everyone. I have said for years that I am bipolar. I mean, you know, some of this I was diagnosed in 1998. So language and what accepted language and what language means. I mean, language is all about communicating. So of course it's going to change over time. If I'm talking about somebody else, ex- I don't know, I'm pretty careful about flipping back and forth. Someone else has bipolar. I will never say that they are bipolar unless that's language that they use for themselves. For a while, I stopped saying I am bipolar and started saying I have bipolar because I thought, well, you know, I have kind of a platform. And so I should, you know, like be a spokesperson for our, our, our army. um but but the thing is that for me i have so many different aspects of my identity part of i am as opposed to i have is the idea that we're not defined by our disability and kind of like what you were just saying you know like is it a disability is it a disorder is a whole another i don't know bag of worms another exciting box of presents to open. <laughs> but because bipolar is so much a part of who I am and the decisions that I make, I mean, every night I go to bed at a certain time and I keep this routine and I take my meds in the morning and at night to take care of my bipolar. And so it's a part of me, the way that you know, identifying as a woman is a part of me, identifying as queer is a part of me as a daughter and nearsighted and a swimmer and like all these different things, none of them define me. They're all important parts of me. I connect with that more than I have bipolar because I don't feel like it's something apart from me. It's not this thing that I carry around. It's not this thing next to me. It's me. It's me.
0: Yeah. And a lot of folks are afraid that by taking meds, they're going to lose that creativity and spark which obviously isn't the experience for everybody but is the experience for some do you find it hard to say that to say if i had the choice to have it or not that you would choose to have it because you know i've been batting that around for two and a half years now and i'm not sure that 100 percent i can say but you've been at this for a long time <laughs> i don't mean that in a bad way you've been doing this for a long time you've been working on yourself do you still have any kind of visceral reaction to saying that
1: uh, I mean, everything's qualified, right? I mean, it's hard to be thankful for a terrible trauma and things that are difficult, you know, but if they've come to shape a meaningful life, well, who would you be if you didn't have that? I mean, you don't know, really. So it kind of, <laughs> in some way, like in some ways, why even think about it? I don't know. But I would be leery if the reason that this question were asked is, well, should we manipulate the genes of a fetus that we think is going to have bipolar disorder? And in that case, I mean, we were talking about language before, if this were going to be plucked, let's say from a fetus, that would definitely be considered an illness, a disease, a disorder, right? I mean, like that would be the approach that would be why, it's just not that tidy the brain is still a mystery that brings all sorts of things like i you just brought up medications and i have really mixed feelings about medications i take meds twice a day i've taken meds ever since diagnosed and i probably always will i believe that i need them i believe that a lot of people need them i also think that there that there's overdiagnosis and overmedication for sure now A lot of it has to do with the healthcare system. I'm not sure what it's like up there in Canada. I don't know why I just put on a little Southern accent. (laughs) Hey, that's not a
0: Canadian accent. What are you doing? (laughs) Your psychiatrist is amazing. I love love her character in the book. (laughs) I just wanted to give her a big hug. (laughs) That kind of made me think of this idea with artists and musicians and filmmakers being afraid that if they take meds oh my god am i gonna lose that and a lot of punk bands are like that too well what comes out of that what's the new normal
1: yeah yeah there are a lot of really really important questions in there to get to the other side of one of the things that i think is a big thing to wrestle with i think especially for artists who especially for artists i say i mean i say this as an artist it's not necessarily artist only but who really have found the kind of fire and you know irresponsibility perhaps you know passion you know like what we think of as this motivator that that would be lost feeling like that's where creativity comes from like i would picture like a fainting couch getting all this stuff and then you know, just the drama of it. the drama picture that as sort of a moth to the flame idea do you need that fire do you need that fire because if you know that it's self-destructive is it worth it is that the work that you need to do and that's a philosophical question i mean i can't tell somebody that they don't want fire maybe they want fire i can't tell them that they don't want it i can say that it's different to be stable and your creativity comes from a well that's different from that fire, and that it might be worth trying, and maybe you'll change your mind. Maybe it'll feel like growth. And I think that if someone, let's say, other artists who really, really don't want to lose their mania, and they have to take these medications, and they resent them, well, then that's not healthy for them. And it's not going to stick for that to be fulfilling who you are as a creative person, too. It means learning a, or finding a different way to recognize where your creativity comes from. I can't tell somebody that if they're a moth that they don't want the flame. I just have me as an example. I have found that stability is good for my creativity. It just is, I have found I'm most creative in the morning and that's when I do my most mushy flow kind of stuff. And then like afternoons are more like editing kind of things, admin, or that's when I have my clients. Learning those things and being able to be clear-eyed has worked for me.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Scream Therapy. I'm coming to you from Powell River, a small coastal town in British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Kalahaman Nation. Doing this podcast and talking to other folks living with mental health challenges has been a huge part of my journey. It means the world to me that you're out there listening. You can sign up for my newsletter and find more episodes at ScreamTherapyHQ.com. That's ScreamTherapyHQ.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let's talk punk and mental health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, take care and be well.